Hey, hey, Changemaker, welcome to Rethink Social Change Podcast, a show dedicated to helping social change practitioners improve the way they make change happen to achieve tangible and sustained impact. I'm your host, Ratiba Sharif. I've worked with some of the world's leading social change organizations for more than two decades on four continents to help them design better projects, learn from them, and measure their results. Using Rethink Social Change cards, I will challenge changemakers like yourself to share their experience on what worked, what didn't, and why in a very unique way. I will shuffle the deck of 54 Rethink Social Change cards and randomly draw four cards that will guide our conversation. So if you're ready for unscripted, jargon-free stories from the field, let's dive into today's episode. My guest today is joining us from Susa on the sunny coast of Tunisia. Jihad Hashsalam is a social scientist and researcher extraordinaire. His focus areas are social inclusion, conflict mitigation, and countering violent extremism in Tunisia and the larger MENA region. As an applied social researcher, he helps social change organizations assess the landscape of their interventions, monitor the context of their projects, and develop and implement tailored responses to improve the lives of those they serve. Can't wait to see what cards will guide my conversation with him. Let's welcome him in. Hi, Jihad. Hi, Thanks for joining me. So, Jihad, we're going to have a start the conversation. You know the drill. I will shuffle the cards, draw three cards, which I will show you, and I will draw one card, which I won't show you, that I will use later on in the conversation okay. to go deeper, okay? So I know you've been very busy. Are you working on specific projects? Yeah, I'm working on a project. It's uh, it's a study, actually. It's a study of the digital like space in Tunisia. So, yeah, we are right now into it. Okay. Yeah, it's a sort of an assessment, you know, of digital space act, all of that. All right, so I've got the cards, and I'm going to just randomly draw one, two, and three. I didn't see them, and then I'll draw quickly the uh, card that will help me uh, move into the conversation a little bit more, kind of dig deeper later on. So I'm going to draw it here. You won't see it. Let me show you your cards. All right, so in terms of context, we have social context. All right, so we're going to talk okay. about dynamics, structures, okay? Think about all that. In terms of change, we're talking policy change, okay? Yeah. So this would be laws, policies. And then in terms of people, stakeholders, and we have eight actors. So depending on your experience, eight. we're talking NGOs, CSOs, CBOs, community-based organizations, civil society organizations, working in the same location on the same issues. Okay? So those are our three cards. I'll repeat. Social context, um, eight actors, when we're working at the level of change, when we're trying to you know, our projects are attempting to change policies or contribute to transforming uh, policies, okay? So, do they trigger any thoughts, any projects that you worked on uh, that you want to share uh, some about? Okay, so, yeah, policy change, big uh, actors and communities, that's a little bit difficult. It's the policy change that makes it difficult because there aren't so many projects okay. that... Uh, that I worked on that aimed at policy change starting okay. from the community level. But 
policy change started from the community level. You know, that's difficult. But I remember participating in the evaluation of uh, Tadaim. So that's uh, that's a USAID project that was programmed. So that was running here in Tunisia between 20, I think, 2017, 2018 to 2021. You know, it's a big project in terms of budget, etc. It's a $50 million project. You know, the overall goal of the project was to support and uh, enhance the decentralization process here in Tunisia, the local decentralization process, and uh, improve local governance structures here in Tunisia. So they worked in multiple communities, I think 30 and some communities, and Specifically, they worked with uh, municipalities, but also uh, with civil society actors uh, down in the community level. So this project ultimately had a policy change objective, which is to improve the ongoing decentralization process and improve local governance. You know, uh, when we say improve local governance, it means enhancing, you know, the capabilities of local governance structures, uh, mainly municipalities, but also supporting new regulations, you know, that uh, new decentralization regulations, supporting the capabilities of uh, municipalities to deliver public services at the local level, improving relationships and building relationships between uh, local NGOs or local civil society actors and the uh, local governance structures, etc. So this is a policy change, you know, and we have an aid actor, which is USAID, and the implementing, you know, organization, which is Deloitte, so we have both big, two big, giant aid act, international aid actors, but we also have local partners here in Tunisia. So NGOs and civil society actors, those sort of, I don't know if you could describe them as aid actors or not, because they are on the recipient end. So, yeah, so at some, in some terms, we can define them as aid actors, you know, and they were aiming for policy change, you know starting from the bottom up, because you want to change the policy of how governance is being done here in the country, how public services are being, you know, delivered, how strategies are being built, etc. So you do it from the local level, you know. So, yeah, it's one of the rare projects where policy change, you know, is being done initially from the bottom up, you know. But you have also to work with the upper level, you know, upper institutional level because you have to work with the ministries, you have to work with the government of Tunisia, you know, presidency of the government, you have to work with the higher level structures that are administering, you know, a lot of services that being served on the local level. For example, the company, the general company of electricity, some of those companies, you know, they are big, very big higher level structures. So, yeah, so you have to somehow find the balance, tip a balance between, you know, what the local governance structures and local society actors are requesting, what are their expectations, you know, what do they need, etc. How do they perceive the centralization process? And also how that all is being perceived or being done by the higher level national structures. So, and that's somehow hard, you know, that's very hard, you know, because, you know, people between the local and the national level, they tend to have conflicting, you know, expectations, conflicting needs, conflicting interests, 
And especially the most difficult one is how to convince, because any decentralization process, any governance decentralization process, it requests at least a transfer of competence from national structure to a local structure. So national structure transfers some of its competence, you know, to the local level. And with the competence of uh, transfer of competence, that requires also a transfer of resources, you know, because you cannot give someone some competence. You say you delegate a structure to do this or that, and you give it jurisdiction and you don't give it resources. So you need to do it, you know, in parallel, you know, and that's the main dynamic in doing any decentralization process and implementing any decentralization process. And it's so difficult to convince national level structures to delegate some of their jurisdictions, some of their competence, and ultimately to delegate some of their resources, you know. And at some point, they might see that as a threat, you know, to their power position or to their interests. So how you you run that, it's a little bit difficult, mm. you know. It's a little bit challenging. Yeah. And I think most of the challenges that actually hampered the effective implementation of the decentralization process in Tunisia, it comes up to that, you know, higher level structures, they want to stick, national level structures, they want to stick and want to monopolize jurisdiction, competence and resources. And they see any transfer of competence or any transfer of resource as a threat to their power position. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of information here and I just wanted to unpack a few things. uh, So it's a decentralization. It's about increasing participation in decision-making at local level, right? Yeah. That's the the whole point of of today. And so basically it's dynamics at the local level and hoping that it will trickle up to the central level and vice versa. It's not only participation. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. What is it about then? What's it's not only participation. That's one of the common misconceptions when coming to do decentralization programs. You cannot invite people to participate in something that wouldn't lead to anything. For example, if we invite people to a local planning meeting in XYZ municipality, you know, when we invite them, we need to ensure them that their participation would lead to something, actually, would impact something. And in order in order that their participation would be actually effective, their municipalities, they need to have, you know, the competence and the resources to implement whatever it comes out of that planning meeting, you know. And that's the problem, you know. Sometimes we fuel participation only to the sake of participation, you know, we invite people to participate and that's it, it ends, it ends there, you know, it doesn't lead to anything. Yeah, we engage them into three days planning sessions, etc., blah, 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 etc., doing all of that collective brainstorming, etc. They put down plans, you know, to do this project, that project, to work on this on that, but actually they don't have neither the competence nor the resources to do any of that. Yeah. And that's, you know, the trick with especially decentralization programs is that you need to balance between participation, you know, and effective implementation. Yeah. People, they don't just come to participate. They come to change their situation, you know. So basically what we're doing is that oftentimes it's the 
the fact that upstream we didn't prepare the local municipalities to create a space for that participation to really happen, genuinely happen. It becomes a partaking. Yeah. It's a show, right? A show bringing people together and, and giving them the exactly. impression that they're participating in local decision making. But there are no structures, no systems. Is there will? to actually have them participate. That's another one. But essentially what you're saying is that you increase their expectations for participation, for real engagement, but there are no tools, no mechanisms put in place to actually follow up on those in terms of concrete actions. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And that actually is very detrimental because I'm I'm thinking like this even worse than, than doing this project in the first place, right? It's like, don't even talk about participation if you're not going to follow up. So, so then the question is like, what you, you mentioned in evaluation, you know, regardless of, of this specific project, yeah. but just in general, you know, when you do participation, what are some of the lessons learned of real engagement or in a, at, uh, yeah. at local level in a higher level decision, you know, uh, processes? that impact not only that community, but just the country uh, as a whole? Yeah, I think the first thing is to be honest with the participants. You know, you try to tell them at first, this is a very long process, you know, and this is just a step in that process. So that way you actually limit their expectations, be realistic. We are gathering here, you know, to try to influence the process but don't expect like when you come out of the meeting, everything will be done. You know? That will take time. It doesn't only depend on the project that we are running or the activities that we are implementing. It's larger than that. It depends on others, you know, actions done by others, you know, other actors. Yep. So you need to set the tone realistically, you know, mm-hmm. and be honest with people that we are aiming to change, we are participating in change, but it doesn't mean Mm. that change would happen overnight, you know, (laughs) you know, and actually you need also to tell them that in order for change to happen, you need to carry on that maybe after the project. So we are, it's just a step in a larger process. And I think that's crucial. Yeah, it's very interesting because there are other projects that I worked on. um, Probably you've also uh, worked on those uh, where uh, where it's a process. You bring people together to at least in the same room, people who've never talked to each other, to just kind of level the playing field and agree on areas where participation is warranted, where it's not, etc., how it can happen, right? So that's kind of a preparing the field, preparing the discussion uh, for uh, later. So I think it's this, the jump that we make from, uh, we avoid these kind of preparatory work, preparatory uh, sessions of conversation, bringing people around the table to build rapport, yeah. to build trust, then move on to the next conversation about what it is that we're trying to change. But so the question that it begs for me is, I'm assuming that um, work had been done pre-project design to say, okay, we're not going to jump in and do this. We're going to do this, before, right? We need to do a number of activities before to, to lay the, the foundation for conversations on actual participation. Was that done? Were people prepared, like, you know, being honest about them, about expectations, et cetera, before, when I say people, participants, right? Beneficiaries in those communities, was that done before yeah. or there wasn't much much groundwork uh, done? Yeah. Okay, I will be honest. I will speak generally not about specific 
program, but my experience from different programs. Usually this work is done like doing a needs assessment, contacting the main stakeholders, meeting with them, etc. But I think there is more deeper problem. For example, when you see a project matrix and you start seeing objectives and the theory of change, etc. It's very large. It's very large. And it sent the tune to a whole bag of expectations, you know. So, for example, in a theory of change, if you find the sustainability of, I don't know, economic systems, that's a very large word. That's a very, a whole bag of things, you know. That's not specific enough. Well, maybe later you try to define what is this and that, etc. But on the level of the theory of change and on the level of objectives, generally they are very large, you know, and they are very deceiving, you know. And I understand that because sometimes aid actors, they try to sell their projects to funders. And these funders are generally representatives of governments, state actors, and they aim for a larger change. They want really change to happen in that way or another. And I think that's a problem, you know, that's a problem, especially with the programs or projects that have big budgets, you know. So you have a big budget, let's say of dozens, or I don't know, 20 or 20 to 50 million dollars, and you have a very big overarching theory of change. So you have, first of all, an overarching theory of change that you can, you know, insert anything in it. So a lot of expectations in it. And you have a big budget, so you have a funder that's pushing you to do everything. And when it pushes you to do everything, actually, you end up doing <laughs> not doing anything. So that's a problem. That's why, personally, I'm starting to favor small level, small budget, you know, small grants projects. I think they are more specific, more targeted, more realistic. Yeah, it's... Um... It's a cash 22 because, you know, like um, donors want impact. And it's true, like beyond the fact that, you know, you overpromise in uh, proposals. When the tenders are sent, you know, it's a competitive process. As we know, a lot of uh, organizations compete for that tender. But regardless of that, because that's a larger structural system, right, that uh, has so many components that we're not going to touch on right now. But there is a possibility. There is an avenue now where even donors are requesting for, uh, are accepting that there is a progressive development of theory of change. So it's for like for for more than like three year, like even two year projects, for three, five, four year project, you can um, actually develop yeah. uh, theories of change, review your theory of change based on data, even review your probably not the goal and the objectives. Those kind of tend to. Uh, to not change, but um, but there are now you know in increasing examples where um, there's an organic development, uh, an informed kind of review of the direction, so to speak, as the project unfolds. So that's good, despite all the structures that are put in place that you can't change. Now I agree with you. It'd be good to see larger projects as like deconstruct them into smaller projects where we can look at progress, yeah. right? And like an evolution. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I've been looking into that and doing my own personal research on that because there's, uh, if you look at, you know, uh, the other fields, like, for example, um, the, in the business field, they have what they call um, customer, uh, customer journeys. And we could 
envisioned uh, for, for this uh, um, social journey or community journey, right? Where you have different actors and you see how they will evolve as you implement the project. So that kind of opens up a new yeah. space for, for engagement and of moving incrementally, more realistically, because when you implement in social context, you know, it changes. Uh, I, I've seen in Tunisia where you can make advances in a project and then there's one political discourse on a weekend and the Monday, exactly. everything has changed. All the work that you do. Exactly. So, so that's an interesting one. But do you agree with that or have you seen it uh, in yeah. all the work that you've done? Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with that. And as I said, personally, I'm starting to favor, you know, small level, small scale, small budget projects. I think they are easier to manage, more effective, more realistic, and I don't know, more impactful maybe. So I think we need to be more realistic about what we can do as civil society or aid actors, and especially in situations where policy change is really out of reach. You know, in some countries and in some societies, Unfortunately, policy change is out of reach for aid actors or for civil society actors. So we will not stop doing what we do. We will continue doing what we do. But I think we, we need to do it in smarter ways, you know, just having very specific, very small level impacts and mm. let it be, you know, let it be. It will lead to something in the future that you will not maybe be there to measure it or to see it, you know, but it will lead to something in the end, you know? So that's, I think, more realistic, more manageable, and even more cost-effective, you know, sometimes. For example, if you have one project doing it with 25 people or 20 people in, I don't know, two communities, that's more manageable, more cost-effective than you have 3,000 people dispersed around the country working in 30 communities. Imagine that. So personally, I'm starting to favor that, that sort of project. And I think even at some levels of change that are usually neglected, like interpersonal level of change, those type of small projects, they are more impactful on that level. They build interpersonal networks yeah. that really last between the civil society and the beneficiaries and between the beneficiaries themselves, etc. Because why? Because when you work as a civil society organization and you have, for example, two people managing the project, if you have only 10 participants in that project, you have a higher expectation that they will build more intimate and more close personal relationship with the staff of the organization than when you have 100 participants. They don't have, two people don't have the time to know 100 participants and to contact, to be in contact with them on a daily basis. But 10 participants, that's okay. So you build more lasting interpersonal networks. And that's crucial, I think, in what we do. I think interpersonal networks and contacts are neglected in what we do. While they are really crucial in too many ways, in building trust, improving trust, access yeah, because this card, you know, the social uh, context is uh, is really critical, right? All those dynamics at play at local level. You need to understand them before you can start um, uh, implementing or rolling out an initiative that calls for, you know, massive 
engagement with local authorities, uh, local civil actors, political yeah. actors, etc. And all those variables come into play and you need to kind of balance them and know them and understand them before you can go ahead and build anything out of that. You know, the I had the Trump yeah. card that I didn't show you. The one that came up was inclusive. So it's about inclusion, yeah. right? It's about <laughs> values that involves, um, yeah, uh, of all stakeholders, right? So it's part of it. I think you're saying, you know, be inclusive and, and work with smaller groups, understand them and help that grow. You know, it's more of like a, is it participatory um, a citizen uh, framework where you like pyramids, right? Works on yeah. pyramids. You start with 10, many groups of 10 that will then kind of uh, uh, reach out to 10 more, yeah. etc. And then you can, uh, you can advance yeah. on that. And it's true, Jihad, because, you know, the interesting about the mix of these three cards is that actually policy change, you know, we were at aid actors who are at very local level unless they are huge advocacy NGOs, you know, that do advocacy at central level. But at local level and dynamics, there's that's a big jump, understanding this and moving into this. On the same token, for policy to really represent these people, you need to come down here. So it's the in-between that's actually missing here, as you said, the interpersonal change as well. That's important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's very hard, you know, to jump from the community level, local level, to the policy level, you know. And sometimes you may need to go out of the community level. You may, for example, I've seen social movements here in Tunisia, for example, um, contesting a whole range of environmental issues in the South, but they are not restricted, you know, only to one community. It's a coalition of different communities and different organizations working in multiple communities in the south of Tunisia. And they build their platform based on we have a common issue, which is our environment is being degraded. You know, we have pollution, industrial pollution. Mm -hmm. Our agriculture is being, you know, yeah. wiped out, etc. So our uh, water resources are being wiped out, etc. So they build that around a common perception, you know, of the problem. And, you know, they started their platform that way and it evolved, you know, eventually. And it included at least right now six to seven communities, you know. So I think at some point to reach that level of policy change or working toward impacting policy change, I think local organizations, they need to build coalitions, coalitions with organizations in other neighboring communities that share with them maybe some of their problems, if not all of their problems. So I think that that kind of inter-community work, finding the common ground with other communities and working toward a platform, you know, that would be representative of all those communities. I think that's crucial, you know, and especially in countries in this southern, you know, part of, of this world where community and regionality, they are still very impactful, you know. You have either in Morocco where, where you are now or in Tunisia, you have people identifying themselves by belonging to regions, you know, and they see their regions as having similar problems, and similar issues, you know. And I think we need to build on that. Why not we have like like a program working on a specific region and that's it, you know. I think it would be more impactful if a program, for example, took a region 
and worked on all the, the communities in that region and identified the common issues that shared within that region and worked finally on that. Why not? Sometimes we try to avoid this question of regionality, you know, to avoid tensions, etc. But it's not that. We know that what divides people, what is a divider can be also a connector, you know. <laughs> a divider can also be a connector, you know. And in this case, I think regionality is being overlooked out of the way because, I don't know, maybe even the category of community is a little bit North American. It's somehow North American, you know, category, you know, because also in our countries, how we define communities, a community is, it differs a lot from how an American or Canadian defines community, you know. For example, we don't have a word in our dialects, Arabic dialects, for community, you know. We speak about neighbors, ahyeh, we speak about uh, jihad, regions, but we never speak about something that's community. So why do we need to have this label? Sorry, I was going to say, we talk about ethnic groups in some countries. Yeah, we have also ethnic groups in some countries. Yeah, in Algeria or in Morocco. Yeah, do have that. So why not build on the native local landscape, social landscape, you know? try to understand its geography and build on that. Yeah, well, I thank you so much for this conversation, Jihad. We talked about many things, but what I took away were a few words. The first one is be honest and prepare participation. What do, how do you define it and what will it entail? That's an important kind of lesson to learn. Because of the multiplicity of actors, of groups and variables at play. So you have to talk about the limitations, the possible, you know, things like that. And this multiplicity of actors and uh, situations and variables, and they actually, it looks, uh, help, you know, the importance, you talked about the importance of understanding, clarifying the similarities, the differences, trying to build on that. You use the word common ground, building on what's common and focusing on that. You also, um, you talked a little bit about uh, and that one is, this one is a very important one, is clarifying what we mean and the words that we use and how we translate some words in this field, how they're translated and the connotations, what they, the, the baggage that they bring with them in both cases. So, and for us, you know, you have done a lot of research. I've done it when you're trying to get a concept set up, you know, when you're trying to get out into a research and try to translate that into research questions, survey questions or focus group questions, then that's when it hits you. Yeah. And you really understand this, like, what do we mean in this one? So that speaks to me quite... Uh... And then the last one, and we touched upon it a little bit, is being more realistic on objectives and maybe looking at projects more in terms of a, a smaller scale rather than kind of large-scale project with one unchanging theory of change, unpacking the assumptions behind that theory of change and being clear about those as well. So those are kind of the, the main areas that uh, the main points that I took away from our conversation. It was super insightful. As always, conversations with you. Thank you. Thank you, Rativa. It was super stimulating for me. It's uh, as always, you know, you, you get the best out of everyone, Rativa. And that's something you, you do very well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Best of luck in the current research uh, project that you're doing, assessment that you're doing on the uh, digital landscape. Thank you. Best of luck for you too in the podcast. And always a pleasure. Looking forward to see, you know, what other people has to offer through your platform. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jihad.
Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Ciao. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Rethink Social Change Podcast. I hope you got a lot of value and actionable insights from today's show. Would love if you take a minute to leave us a review. And if you work on social change and are up for the challenge, reach out. And before you go, be sure to subscribe so you're the first to know when we release a new episode. Till then, be the change.